Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who has despised and abhorred by, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. And to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. So they will come from afar, from the north, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? and have no compassion on the child she has born. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back, and those who lead you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear all you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Though you are ruined and made desolate and your land laid waste, now you will be too small for your people. And those who devoured you will be far away. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in.
Then you will say in your heart, who bore, who bore me these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone. But these, where have they come from? This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their hips. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, whose, those whose hope in me Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty, the mighty One of, is, of Jacob. Thanks, Becky. I normally print the scripture reading out in extra large print, um, which I forgot to do today. So Becky was reading out of the extra small print in the Bible here. We are looking at Isaiah chapter 49. Uh, we're really looking at the whole next section. We've only read chapter 49, but the next section, chapter 49 through chapters 52, verse 12. And uh, this sort of starts off a new, uh, smaller subsection in the book of Isaiah. Previously, we've been looking at a comparison between God and the idols, and the point of that comparison was to show and impress upon God's people God's ability, unlike the idols, to save them, God's ability to redeem them, that he had the power and the strength and the might to do that. And and because of that, they could know then that the reason they would go into exile and the reason uh, they would find themselves in exile and the reason they could have hope of a promised return from exile was not because God had been defeated by some foreign God, but that God was able still to redeem them. And uh, now the shift uh, in this section turns to the question not of whether God is still able to redeem them, but of answering the question to God's people of whether God still wants to redeem them. And uh, we, in this section, what we'll see now is God beginning to, again, in, promise the salvation that he will bring to God's people who are in exile. And in this section, 49 through 52, 12, we see that salvation anticipated and promised. And the next section, 50, chapter 53, salvation accomplished. And then chapters 54 and 55, that salvation being offered. And in this first section, there's this increasing anticipation of the future promise of salvation for God's people. And as this announcement and this promise of salvation increases in its anticipation and intensity and fullness, the, what we see also increasing 
is the response of God's people to that announcement of salvation is increasing in their inability to believe it. And it's as though to, you know, that they, they now have been, have grasped the idea that God is able to save them. But even though they've grasped that idea, they're still wrestling with and they're hard to convince of the idea that God wants to save them still. They have a hard time believing that God hasn't just give up, given up on them. That God hasn't just said, forget it, forget them, that's it, I've had enough, I'm out of here, you're on your own. And the burden of this section that we're looking at today is to convince God's people that God does not view them in that way. To convince God's people that he doesn't view his promises to them in that way. And to convince them that he's the God who never forgets his people. Maybe um, we have felt the way that God's people were tempted to feel in their exile. That God, that's the end of God's patience and faithfulness. That's the limit of his grace and dealing with us. That we're beyond the point of no return. That he's not there. He doesn't remember. He doesn't care. He's forgotten. Have you ever felt that way in life? And what we see here is that God is reminding his people that he's not done with them that he hasn't forgotten about them, that his gracious intentions towards them and his uh, commitment to fulfilling his promises to them isn't finished yet. And God's sovereign power, which we saw focused on in the last section, is connected to his commitment to his people which we see the focus on here. We see in this section two things we're going to look at. God's commitment to his people and God's reassurance to his people. God's commitment to his people. God is unfailingly committed to his people and his commitment to his people specifically here in the book of Isaiah and in this section of Isaiah is seen through the servant, the promise of the servant. And in the beginning of chapter 49, we see the second of the four what's called servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And then chapter 50, we see the third of the servant songs. And this figure of the servant is uh, an individual that is very different from the nation of Israel. Now the nation of Israel is also at times called God's servant. But this servant is an individual that stands apart in stark contrast to the nation of God's people. He's very different from them. Whereas the nation is God's servant who is in need of salvation. The servant is the one who accomplishes and offers that salvation to God's people and beyond God's people to the world. And in uh, chapter 49 verse 5 we read this. And now the Lord says, He who formed me, the servant is speaking here, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. You see, that's what the servant's God-given purpose is, to rescue, to bring back the nation, the people of God, to God. To gather back Israel to himself. The servant redeems the people of God and brings them back to God. And you see, 
uh, in the last section, a lot of the focus was on Cyrus and Cyrus being the instrument God would use to bring the people out of exile. But what we start to see here is that God's people were in need of much more than just that. They needed more than just Cyrus to bring them back from Babylon. They needed a redeemer to bring them back to God. Their real problem, their ultimate problem, wasn't captivity in Babylon. It was separation from God. And, you know, no matter what situation we find ourselves in in life, no matter how good or how bad it is, and our situations do matter, but what is of ultimate importance to us in any situation, whatever situation we find ourselves in life, what is in, of ultimate importance is where we stand in relation to God. Whether we're near to God and reconciled to him or whether we're far from God and separated from him. And Jesus redeems us so that we can be near to God by his grace instead of being separated from God by our sin. And that's what Jesus does. And in uh, 49.5, he said to redeem Israel. The servant redeems Israel. But in 49.3, the servant is called Israel. And so it seems strange that this servant would be called Israel, would be identified as the very uh, entity that he's called to redeem. And it doesn't mean here that the servant isn't referring to an individual. When it, he's called Israel, it doesn't mean that the servant is uh, the nation of Israel. But what it means is that the servant in himself is what the nation of Israel ought to have been but never was. He is in himself the ideal people of God. They were supposed to be God's servant. They were supposed to be God's witnesses to the world to bring his glory to the ends of the earth. But they weren't. And if you remember back in chapter 48, verse 1, God addresses the nation of Israel as those who are called by the name of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. You see, even though they bared the name of Israel, they didn't live up to that name. They didn't live up to what that name ought to have uh, been uh, what that name stood for. God's people never lived up to their name and instead of by their witness showing God's, displaying God's goodness and glory to the nations, they hadn't lived up to that name. And the servant then is called Israel because now he is standing in for Israel, doing what Israel was supposed to do for themselves but never did and couldn't. He's the true Israel who would reveal God's glory to all the world. The servant can only be Jesus. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is the one that all, everything in the Old Testament points to and finds its deepest meaning in. This servant couldn't be the nation of Israel. In chapter 50, verse 5, which we didn't read, the servant is described as never having been rebellious and never having turned away. And this is a strong contrast to, um, between the faithfulness of this servant and the faithlessness of the nation of Israel. Because both of those things, never having rebelled, never having turned away, are things that are used to describe uh, the nation of Israel. They have constantly turned away. 
They have been rebellious against God. These things that they are, are always constantly described as doing, the servant is described as never having done because he himself is not in need of salvation, but he offers salvation to those who can't save themselves but need saving. And God, you see, is so committed to his people that when faced with their utter failure to live up to what he called them to be, he finds another way to fulfill his promises to them by raising up his own son to be for them what they weren't. He provides his own son as the ideal Israel to be the substitute for the failure Israel. What we learn about the servant, we learn a few things about the servant in these chapters. In 49, 1 and 2, he's described as being called by God whose mouth is like a sharpened sword. And so we learn that he is the prophet of God who speaks the word of God. He's described as an arrow in the hand of God. He's ready to do God's will and accomplish his plan. Uh, In chapter 50, verse 4, It said that God has given his servant a well-instructed tongue which speaks the words that sustain the weary. And it goes on to say that this servant listens to God's word every morning so that he knows just what word to speak to the people of God. He is not just a prophet of God, but he is the prophet of God because he speaks as God himself. He speaks the very words of God. It's like the picture is painted that he is so in tune with God. He listens to God at every moment such that he always knows the word of God to speak. But the problem is, though he listens to God and though he faithfully speaks the word of God to the people of God, they don't listen to him. Chapter 50, verse 2, when I called, why was there no one there to answer? He listens to God, but they don't listen to him. And he listens to God, and he keeps God's word himself in perfect obedience. And he keeps God's word himself in perfect obedience, even when hardship comes upon him for it. In chapter 51, verses 6 and 7, he offers his back to those who beat him his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. He didn't hide his face from mocking and spitting, and he set his face like flint. He hardens himself, he braces himself even, so that he can stick to being faithful to God and holding to God's word, even when that holding to God's word results in hardship and persecution by those around him. How could this not be talking about Jesus? As we see this servant being described, especially next week, we see him described in more and more fullness and detail. And it points us right to Jesus. And this servant submitting himself to mistreatment here, this is an, ex- an example for us that if we are being mistreated, we should simply uh, submit ourselves to that. No, it's part of the servant's special role in redemption. His suffering for the people of God as their substitute and savior. And we'll look at that more next week. Uh, But it is still instructive to us because it's still an example to us that that when we listen to and hold to God's word faithfully, it will at times mean worldly rejection. 
and it will require spirit-strengthened bracing of ourselves. The phrase that it uses is he makes his forehead like flint. This will require spirit-strengthened bracing of ourselves to face that rejection rather than to cave to it. To face it while faithfully holding to God's word rather than cave to it and abandoning to or compromising on God's word. And that's what this servant did. And that's why in 49, 7, and 8, it describes him as being despised and rejected. But then later on, as the one to whom all kings would bow down before. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is Jesus the one who is despised and rejected by men, but now the one who has been raised to the highest place where every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is God. This is the same trajectory of Jesus as described in Philippians 2, where he made himself a servant and submitted himself to to God's will, to obedience to God, even when obedience to God meant death on the cross entrusting himself to God, knowing that God would raise him up at just the right time. And that's what God did. He humbled himself, and in doing so, he placed his life completely in God's hands. He trusted God completely, trusted God that when he placed his life in God's hands, God wouldn't forsake him or forget him. And you see, even Jesus uh, had that feeling of being forsaken by God. He cried out on the cross, why God have you forsaken me? And even here in 49.4, this servant says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Because he had that, frustra- that feeling of frustration and futility. But he trusted God even in the midst of it. And in Philippians 2, Paul tells us that our attitude should be the same as Jesus' attitude was. Even though we'll never be uh, a humble servant as he was, and even though we'll never be exalted as he was, but nevertheless, we like him humble ourselves. We like him become servants. And when we do so, we have to entrust ourselves to God. We put our, our lives in God's hands, trusting that in that humbling of ourself, he'll still be enough for us. And in that humbling of ourselves and in that serving and sacrificing, he won't forsake or forget us. Jesus trusted God completely. He trusted that God would not forsake or forget him. And God didn't. God's commitment to his people's salvation is secured by his commitment to his son. In Jesus' vindication, in Jesus being exalted and lifted up by God in honor, we see God's commitment to him to never forget or forsake him. And in seeing God's commitment to his own son, we're assured of God's commitment to us. Jesus' mission won't fail because God won't fail his son. And so we know then that God will never fail us to receive Jesus by faith. 
And he promises freedom for the captives in 49.9. He promises that they'll feed and find pasture and neither hunger nor thirst nor be harmed by the heat or the sun. He promises to guide them with compassion uh, besides springs of water. He promises to be their good shepherd. He promises to turn mountains into roads and raise up highways to bring back his people from the ends of the earth to himself. That's God's commitment to his people. And you see, what God's redemption is about isn't just return from physical captivity in Babylon, but freedom from spiritual captivity for the whole world. It's more than just a temporary change in situation. It's not just an earthly deliverance, but as 51.6 puts it, my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. This is an eternal deliverance that can only come about through the eternal salvation that we have through Jesus, the eternal salvation from sin and death. And his work is so certain, his ability to save is so strong that 49.6, God actually says it's too small a thing for Jesus to just save those from among the nation of Israel. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. See, it's too small of, of a thing for this servant to just redeem those from among the nation of Israel who are God's true people. Here, God says he's gonna do even more than that. He's gonna extend that salvation to Gentiles, to the very ends of the earth. And in chapter 49, verse 8, God says, I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people. He's talking to the servant here. God's people, you see, had broken covenant with God. But God is still faithful to it and offers it in a renewed way as a, re as a new covenant through this servant's work. And he himself assures that it will be kept. That's God's commitment to his people. And God also gives his reassurance to his people. And so God's, God's people hear all these promises of God's commitment to them through what this faithful servant of God will accomplish for them. And their response is essentially this. Their response to all this great news is, well, that's great news, but it can't be great news for me. Their response is essentially great news, but it can't be great news for me. And we see that response in chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. That's their response to all this, this promise, this announcement, this increasing anticipation of God's salvation that he would bring to his people when they were in exile, their response is, well, God's forgotten me. See, maybe they thought God could actually bring them back from uh, the land of exile. But it's another thing to be brought back to the God whom they had abandoned. And so they thought these promises simply can't be for us. We had abandoned God 
And certainly he no longer wants to redeem us. Certainly he's forgotten about us. But God's answer is no. God's answer is no, I haven't forgotten. And far from forgetting his people, far from forgetting their well-being, far from forgetting their future, far from forgetting the fulfillment of his promises to them, he assures them, reassures them that they're constantly right before him, always on his mind, always having his loving concern. And to drive home that point to them, to give extra reassurance to them about that reality, he uses two powerful images to show just how much his people can be assured that he has not and will not forget about them. In 49.15, he asks the question, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? See, it's, it's hard to paint a more vivid picture of mindfulness and loving concern than the mindfulness and loving concern that a mother has for a newborn baby. It's mindfulness that persists even through extreme sleep deprivation. We're experiencing this right now. <laughs> even with all that sleep deprivation, what he's saying is that a mother doesn't forget her infant. A mother's connection to her child is a beautiful thing. Of course, you know, fathers have connection to their children's too, but a mother's is even closer and more direct and more intimate. And her own compassionate, loving bond towards her child makes forgetting that child nearly unthinkable. But even if forgetting was possible, the child itself provides frequent reminders of its presence and need for the mother. The forgetfulness of a mother towards her newborn infant is nearly unthinkable. And even if a mother would be distracted from thinking about her newborn, and even if her own connection to the newborn didn't bring the newborn back to her mind, it wouldn't be long before the newborn would remind her of his presence and awaken the mother's mindfulness and compassionate care by the cries of his dependence and need. The forgetfulness of a mother towards her infant is nearly unthinkable, but it is, Isaiah admits, it is still possible. It is still possible. But what he goes on to say is that God's forgetfulness towards his children is not possible. As strong as a mother's mindfulness is towards her own infant that she is nursing, God's mindfulness towards his children is even stronger. God's attachment to his children is even stronger than one of the strongest attachments in all of human bonds. God's attachment is stronger. Earthly love has its failures. Earthly bonds have their failures. Earthly love, earthly bonds have their limits. But God's love and God's bond for his children never fails and never ends. It has no limits. It has no failures in it. And verse 16 continues that thought. Can it, in verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you, God says. Though she may forget, it's possible that would happen, but God says, I will not forget you. It is not possible. 
that he would forget you, his beloved child. In verse 16, uh, yeah, in the second image then in verse 16, God says this, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. If God hasn't given them enough reassurance of his continued care for them, he gives another image to reassure them. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. The name of God's people is written on the palms of his hands. And the picture of that is that it's an image, of course. The picture is that he can't do anything without seeing a reminder of them. He can't set his hands to anything without seeing their, hand, their name on his hands and being reminded of them. This is the opposite then of the normal practice um, in ancient times where normally the master's name would be written on the servant's hand so that the servant would have a constant reminder of whose master he, who, who's, who his master is. Here, the servant's name is written on the master's hand. And I think the switching of that is significant because our ultimate hope isn't in our faithfulness to God, but his faithfulness to us. Our ultimate hope isn't that we remember him, but that he remembers us. The problem we face in this life isn't God's forgetfulness of us, it's our forgetfulness of him. And I don't think there could be any greater reassurance that God will never forget his children than, that, what he, than what he gives here. He will never forget his children. He will never give up on his children. He will never cast away his children. They will constantly and forever be on his mind and on his heart. He'll always be there for them. He'll always care for them. His compassionate love towards them will never end. They will never be that mindfulness of God towards his children will never be interrupted by more pressing concerns. He'll never be distracted from that. It will never be given up on even in the times when we as God's children fail to live up to our identity. Even in those times, our heavenly father forgives us and does not forget us. He keeps us as his own. Even when the situations of life suggest to us that God doesn't care anymore, that God's forgotten, even when that inner voice of failure or guilt or shame tells ourselves that God doesn't care or has forgotten, especially in those moments, by faith, we trust that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that, that is ours in Christ Jesus. And the result of this reassurance that we see in this chapter is, is simply amazement at God's grace. Chapter 49, verses 20 and 21. The children born during your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too small for us. Give us more space to live in. Then you will say in your heart, who bore these? I was bereaved and barren. I was exiled and rejected. Who brought these up? I was left all alone, but these, where they have they come from? You see, what's happening here is there's a, a contrast between the, uh, the at one time barren faith and situation of the people of God 
to after God's promises to them are fulfilled in Christ, the fruitfulness that comes about as a result of that. And the picture is the people of God who remember that time uh, looking around, sort of blinking in disbelief, looking around knowing when, when they had been bereaved uh, of children, when they had been barren in uh, giving birth to children, they look around at an overflowing house where the children are just sort of like, you know, too, too much, too many children to even fit in the house, looking around, blinking in disbelief, saying, where, do all, where did you all come from? And the answer is, they came from the grace of God. They came from the grace of God. One writer sums it up this way. In ourselves, we are barren and bereaved. No more able to bring about abundant life or eternal life than we are to give ourselves physical life. If abundant eternal life is to be ours, it will be the gift of God. And we will look on in amazement saying, where did that come from? And the answer is, it comes from the grace of God. We remember that before Christ came into our lives, we were spiritually barren, spiritually fruitless, dead in our sins, unable to please God, enslaved to sin, captive to the fear of death and eternal death. And when Christ comes into our lives, he changes all that. He makes us spiritually alive. And as we see the fruit of that, we look around and blink in amazement and say, where did all this come from? And the answer is, it comes from the grace of God through Jesus. The grace of the God who will not forget you, his child. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are a gracious God. We give you thanks that our name is written on your hands, that you will not forget us or your promises to us, but will be faithful. Even in the times when we fail you or are unfaithful, we can turn back to you in humble repentance. And Lord, we do ask that you would teach us and grow in us faithfulness to you out of our uh, joyful and thankful and humble response to the grace of God which has been poured out upon us. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.